Well, we're continuing our journey through the book of John where we are making stops at each of the seven statements where Jesus said, I am. All throughout the book of John, we have these moments where Jesus says to his followers, I am something. And whatever it is that he says in that moment has great significance, not only to our lives, but to the specific lives of the people that he was speaking to at that moment in the place where he was speaking to them. This theme of I am runs all throughout the scripture. Last week, we kind of began in the book of Exodus where God makes himself known in a burning bush to Moses. And he sends Moses on this improbable mission to try and liberate an entire nation of people. And Moses says to God, is this burning bush, he says, who should I say sends me? And God responds, tell them I am sent you. And so all throughout the Old Testament, we see this theme of I am, and then Jesus picks up on this theme and continues to proclaim that he is I am. And it's interesting I don't know if you've ever been in a room with somebody that you know who the smartest person in the room is, and it's not you. I was recently in a room of some people, and there was this one lady, and there was no doubt in my mind, she was the smartest person in the room. She was the most wealthy person in the room. She was the most informed person in the room. She was the person in the room who would ultimately be making the decisions that were being discussed. She was in complete control, and yet almost every word out of her mouth was a question. She was constantly asking questions. And I began to even notice that she was asking questions that I knew she knew the answer to. And she was asking questions of me and other people in the room, questions that I knew she already knows the answer to this question. It never fails that the smartest person in the room is usually the one asking the most questions. It's always interesting to me that the one who actually has the most information is usually still the one that is asking for the most information. But you would think if there was anybody in the world who didn't need to ask any questions at all, it would be Jesus. Because I believe that just in his own right as a human being, Jesus was a very intelligent person. Jesus had a good head on his shoulders, but let's not forget he also had this small advantage of being God. That he already had this understanding of who he was and what his mission was and what his purpose was as he was on the earth. And so you would think that throughout scripture, we would not have any questions from Jesus. And yet we do. And one of the questions that Jesus asks his followers has always struck me as interesting because there's this moment in scripture where Jesus says to his closest followers, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? This is such an odd question to me to come from Jesus, because quite honestly, who cares? Who cares who people say that he is? He knows who he is. What does it matter if people, what people are saying about who he is? Like if I hear someone that is asking what other people say about them, my knee jerk reaction is this person is probably a little bit insecure, that they want to know what are other people saying about me? Who do other people say that I am? But what you'll learn about someone that asks a lot of questions is that you really can't learn exactly what they're trying to get at by one single question. You have to follow their line of questioning to really understand what they're trying to get at. Because in this moment, Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And his disciples answer, well, some say that you're John the Baptist. Some people say that you're this prophet. Some people say that you're this person. And then Jesus says, who do you say that I am. 
See, the line of questioning is more important than the single question that he makes in that moment. Because I think what Jesus understands in this moment is that in order to really know that his disciples know who he is, he has to be sure that they are not basing their opinion of him based on what other people are saying. See, the danger is that you will base your opinion of who Jesus is not on knowing him personally, but on what other people say about him. And so he asks his followers, who do people say that I am? And then he says, who do you say that I am? So that he can know, no, you are not being informed by the opinions of others. You are basing what you know of me based on our relationship in that moment. See, when when you take what others say about somebody, you can form an opinion, but you cannot build a relationship. You can form an opinion, but you cannot build a relationship. Have you ever been completely wrong about somebody? Have you ever misjudged somebody? Have you ever assumed that you knew exactly who someone was and why they did what they did only to get to know them and find out that you were completely wrong? See, when you take the information that other people say about somebody, all you can end up with is an opinion. And what Jesus is looking for is a relationship. Jesus is not looking to be known about. Jesus is looking to be known. That our God can actually be known. See, what we have to understand about these statements that Jesus makes when he says, I am, all of these statements point to the reality that Jesus is the Messiah that they had been waiting for. But that's not the only purpose in why Jesus is stating who he is. Jesus is not posturing for a position. He is building a relationship with his followers. He's letting them know who he is. You know, the more that you know who someone is, the more intimate your relationship becomes with them. The more they let you in on the true reality of who they are, the more intimate that your relationship becomes with them. See, every I am is in his relationship to be, is rooted in his desire to be known by his followers, to have a relationship with his followers. And so last week, we talked about Jesus how he stood and fed the multitudes and then said, I am the bread of life. In other words, showing them that he can be their provider and then telling them that he is far more than just a provider of their physical needs, that he is actually the bread of their eternal life, that he is the only one who can sustain them. He is the only one that can fill them. He is the only one that can satisfy the spiritual hunger that they have. And then in John chapter eight, verse 12, it says, When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If there are two words that John loves, they are light and they are life. To John and his writings, everything is either light or life. And in this moment, what Jesus is saying is, I am the light that leads you to life, that I am the light of the world. And again, to really understand the significance of what Jesus is saying in this moment, we have to understand the audience that he is speaking to and the moment in which he is speaking. If we're really honest, for those of us who live in the United States in this modern world, darkness is not really an issue. We always have access to light. We carry light around with us everywhere we go in our pockets. Our cars have lights. Our homes have light. Our lives are not really oriented around light and darkness in the way that they would have been at this time. Uh, We always have a physical solution for darkness. 
Not long ago, uh, something in the wiring in my car has gotten messed up, and none of the lights inside my car work. And so I assumed it was a fuse, and I changed the fuse, and nothing changed. And so there's something somewhere in the wiring that causes the interior of, uh, lights of my car not to illuminate when the doors are open or when we hit the reading lights. They do not work. This is surprisingly frustrating. Like, it's surprisingly frustrating. And it's one of those things that you do not remember until you open the door at night. And, and I'll drive around all throughout the day, and I don't think anything of it. But then every time I open the doors of my car at night, I'm still shocked that the lights don't come on. I'm still frustrated that the lights don't come on. And yet, even in that moment, if I need a light, I pull my phone out of my pocket and I shine a light on whatever I need. Because light and darkness are not really issues for us in this day. But what we have to understand is that this time, to this audience, they would have completely understood the, the contrast between light and darkness. Because their lives would have revolved around the actual idea that when the sun goes down, if you don't have light, it's going to be dark in your home. If you don't have access to light, it's going to be dark in your home. If you don't have oil for your lamps, if you don't have fire, it is going to be dark. So the metaphor would have been deeply understood that darkness is an actual real thing that affects your life. That darkness is an actual real thing that affects your ability to move about freely and go where you need to go. That light is actually something that you do not take for granted. Light is something that you desperately need to be able to accomplish anything. See, they would have understood this contrast between light and darkness from a simple practicality of the fact that they did not have the access to light that we have in this pre-Edison world. But they also would have clearly understood the metaphor of light as good and darkness as evil. They would have understood this metaphor that, that light equals good and darkness equals evil. And what we have to understand about these people that Jesus was talking to is they, they knew Genesis. They, they had the Old Testament. They had these books of the Old Testament. And so they understood what it would mean for someone to say that they are light of the world. I mean, think about for a moment that Jesus God, the one who created light, is now saying, I am the light of the world. And they would have thought of Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, where it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. See, what's interesting in this moment is that when the earth is completely formless, when the earth is completely void, when it is completely empty, that the first anecdote that God puts in place to the darkness, to the formless nature of the earth, to the empty nature of the earth is to create light. It's to bring light in that moment. It says that the spirit of God hovers over the earth and that God created light. See, they would have understood in this moment that to talk about light is to really talk about fire. To talk about light is to really talk about power. And they would have known in this moment that, that for him to say, I am light, is to not just say that I'm illuminating things, but that I actually have power power to change the darkness that is around you. They would have understood Exodus that God appeared to Moses in the burning bush and led the Israelites by a pillar of fire by night. They would have understood these things historically, the, the, the impact that fire had on their life. See, light is powerful. Light is powerful. 
And in this moment, they would have understood that light is powerful. It brings structure where there is chaos. It brings direction where there is confusion. And it brings purpose where there is emptiness. See, that is what Genesis teaches us about the light of God, is that when the earth was formless and void, there was no structure, there was only chaos, there was only confusion, there was only emptiness, that it was the light of God that brought structure to the chaos, that brought direction to the confusion, and that brought purpose where there was emptiness. And the light of God does the same thing for our lives today. That in this moment, Jesus was saying, that same light that brought Fullness where things were empty, that same light that brought purpose, that same light that brought structure, that same light that brought clarity and direction. I am that light. I am that light. See, if your life feels chaotic and confusing and meaningless, he's saying, I am the one who brings the solution to those problems. He's saying, Listen, I know that you may be walking through a season where life feels confusing. I know that you may be walking through a season where life feels chaotic. I know that you may be walking through a season where life feels empty. But I am the light of the world. And my light will bring direction where there is chaos. It will bring purpose where there is emptiness. See, they would have had a deep understanding. And the deep understanding of light would have been increased by the place where Jesus said this. A few years back, I had the privilege of actually traveling to Israel, and we went through the city, and we saw all of these different locations where actual biblical events happened, and it's just a really sacred place where, where there are certain spots where you know that this is where the story took place. This is where this moment happened, and we happened to be there over the season of the Feast of Tabernacles, and there's a few different names for it, but, but as we were driving through the city, out on people's balconies, there were like tarp structures. They're like homemade tents in their backyards. And to this day, some of the Jewish people during the Feast of Tabernacles, they actually sleep in tents to remember God bringing them through the wilderness. And this is actually the season in which Jesus is saying this. It's during the Feast of Tabernacle. That people are, are coming to the tabernacle to remember when Jesus led them out of the wilderness, but they're also living in tents in that moment. And if you back up to the beginning of this story, we hear when it was that he was actually saying this. In John 8, verse 2, it says, At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. Now, here's what you would need to know about the temple courts at that time. That during this Feast of Tabernacles, they would have had large lampstands that they filled with oil that they climbed up on and they lit in order to illuminate the temple. And that fire that they were lighting, those candlesticks that they were lighting during this feast were a reminder through the night of the fire that God used to lead them through the wilderness. And so at dawn, they would extinguish those candlesticks. They would extinguish those giant torches because now the light has come. The sun is up and we no longer need this fire to lead us through the night, but they are reminded of that fire. And so at dawn, those are extinguished. So imagine it says at dawn, Jesus comes to the temple and he sits down to teach the people that these Candlesticks have just been extinguished. The smell of the fire is probably still in the air. And it's in this moment that Jesus sets up to say, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. See, it's no mistake that he doesn't end there. 
But he says, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will have life and never walk in darkness. See, they're sitting amongst the imagery of following God through the wilderness. And Jesus says, I am the light that if you follow me, you will never walk in darkness. These lamps remind you of God's past guidance, but they are not taking you anywhere into the future. They remind you of what God has done, but I'm here to declare what God is doing. That they remind you of his faithfulness, and there's nothing wrong with looking towards the faithfulness of God, but I'm here to take you into the future that he asked for you. See, it's necessary to remember how God has led you in the past, but we are never to stop following where he's taking you now. See, sometimes we can set up looking at what God has done in the past, and we can miss where God is taking us. See, I, I am convinced that, that what Jesus is trying to tell them is that the light that you had was a pillar, but the light that you now have is a person. And don't miss the person looking for the pillar. Don't miss the person looking for what he did before. See, you can miss a move of God waiting for him to fulfill your past expectations. See, they, they were watching the pillars of fire thinking, surely God is going to do it again. Surely God is going to lead us again. Surely we will see a pillar again. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, some of you are in this temple looking for a pillar, but don't miss the person. Don't miss the person. I am the light of the world. And if you follow me, you will never walk in darkness. The light is here. It just looks a little different. See, the danger is that we would be aware of the light, but we would not follow the light. They were aware of the pillars. They were aware of what they meant. They were aware of the history. But Jesus is saying, listen, you can be aware of what God has done, but I need you to be aware of who I am. I am the light of the world. I am the light that guides you. See, it's interesting that it, it doesn't say you won't walk through darkness. It just says you won't walk in darkness. He doesn't say you won't walk through darkness. He just says you won't walk in darkness. And see, there's a difference because the children of Israel understood that they still walked through the wilderness, but they were following the light of God in that moment. See, when you are actually following the light of God, when you're actually following the direction that he has for you, you may walk through darkness, but you bring light into it. It is no longer dark because you are walking through it with the light of God, but it does not promise that you will walk around the wilderness. He still took them through the wilderness, but they had the light with them. See, sometimes we think that just because we're walking through a tough season, we must have missed the direction somewhere. We must have made a wrong turn somewhere. We must have made a wrong turn somewhere along the way. But see, the children of Israel followed the pillar of fire through the wilderness, but they were never in darkness. The only way, the only way to actually go through the wilderness and not be swallowed up by the darkness is to make sure that you're following the light, to make sure that you are carrying the light with you. See, if you're in a dark season right now. That's the only way through. The only way through is to know that you are following the light that is guiding you, that you are following Jesus in that moment. You're following the light. But see, to confidently follow someone, you have to first trust who you are following. And to really trust someone, you have to know them. 
And this is why Jesus over and over said, I am, and made it clear who he was, because he wanted to be known by them. When Kristen and I were first married, we were driving from our home at the time to visit her family in Palatka, and there's not many ways into Palatka. It's a small, small town. And so we were driving, and we were on our way, and we had left really late at night, and it was in the middle of the night, and we came upon a police car that was blocking the road completely, which is never a good sign. And we are out in the middle of nowhere. And, and we're sitting there and we're waiting and we're waiting. There's just one car in front of us and we have no idea what to do or where to go. And finally, the police officer comes up to our window and he says, listen, there's been an accident here that's, that's really serious and we cannot move it because of the injuries that, are, that have taken place. And, and this road is going to be closed for a really long time. You're going to need to find a different way to get to wherever you're going. And we had no cell phone service. We had no way to look up directions. And I said, I literally, I have no idea where to go. I have no idea this is the way to get to Palatka, and I don't know another one. If you know one, I'm open to suggestions. And so he actually said, hold on a minute, and he walked up to the car in front of us, and he knocked on their window, and it was clear that they knew each other. It was a very small town, and they were chatting for a minute, and he came back to my window, and he said, this guy in front of you is going to turn around. You're going to follow him for a while. When you get to a dead end, he's going to go left. You're going to go right, and you'll run into a road that you recognize, and I was like, all right, great. So this guy turns around, and we start following him. We start following him. It's like one o'clock in the morning. I thought we were going to follow him for like 10 minutes. 35 minutes go by. We have not hit the dead end where he turns left and we turn right. And our minds start to wander. And I was like, we don't even know this guy we're following. And I was like, I mean, this guy literally might be leading us into a really bad situation. And so we started to have those hypothetical discussions of like, if he stops this car in the middle of the road, and if he tries to block the road, I'm going to throw it in reverse. I'm going to lay on the horn. We're just going to get out of here as quick as we can, because they may be leading us. This guy might be a murderer. I don't know. And his car made me uncomfortable. Have you ever followed a car and you're like, these headlights, I mean, these taillights look, there's something going on here. This is not, this is not the kind of car that I want to be following. This is not going to take me to a place that I want to go. And we were just very concerned. We were like starting to get nervous. We were like, maybe we should turn back. And I was like, I don't know. I couldn't find my way back to anywhere. If we turn back, then he's going to chase us. We're in more trouble. And then after about 45 minutes, we come to a dead end and he stops and his hand just comes out the window and points like, <laughs> you're going that way. And he turned and sure enough, we ran into a road that we recognized, and everything was totally fine in that moment. But see, when you are following someone that you don't know, your mind starts to wander. You start to question where they are taking you. You start to question their motives and why they are taking you, where they are taking you. See, I think some of you might be following Jesus the way we followed that stranger. Like, you're following him, but you're questioning it every step of the way. Uh, you're following him, but you're like, I don't really trust that you're taking me somewhere I don't want to go. I I'm following you, but I don't really trust that this is going to be a good outcome. I'm following you, but I don't really know that you are leading me into a place of safety. In fact, I'm afraid you may be leading me to a place where you want to take me out. I think that's the way sometimes we follow Jesus because we're, li we're, we're willing to follow him, but we don't quite trust him. We don't quite know him the way we should know him in order to following him. So I would ask you, what are you trusting in your life to lead you to life? What are you trusting to lead you to life? Because I can tell you this, if you're not sure, examine your fears and examine your insecurities. 
Examine your fears and examine your insecurities. Because you'll start to realize, man, when it comes around finances, I, I am not a generous person. I, I withhold because I fear losing what I have. I, I withhold because I fear that God will not continue to provide for me. I, I have a fear based around finances. Let me tell you something. You're trusting in finances to lead you to life. If, if, your, if your insecurities are what people think about you, you're trusting in your own reputation to lead you to life. Your reputation based on what other people say about you. If you're Fear is not being in control, and you are trusting your own ability to get you where life is. And you're not trusting God in those moments. See, in order to follow Jesus, in order to follow the light, you have to trust him. And in order to trust him, you have to know him. In order to trust him, you have to know him. You have to experience him personally. So you can, you can tell a lot about somebody how they respond to your failures, you can tell a lot about somebody about how they respond to your mess. You can tell a lot about somebody about how they respond when you mess up. And see, if I was in this crowd where Jesus is claiming to be light of the world, that would be my number one question. How can I trust you? If I believe that you are the light of the world, how can I trust you? How can I know you? How can I know that you will actually lead me to life? If you are light, how will you respond to my darkness? If you are light, how will you respond to my darkness? If you bring that light of yours around me and reveal my darkness to me, that just sounds like an opportunity for disgrace. That just sounds like an opportunity for shame. That just sounds like an opportunity for rejection. How do I know how you will handle my darkness? Have you ever just had the perfect thing to contribute to a conversation? and then you get interrupted and you don't get to say it. Like if you ever, and a conversation is unfolding and you're just like, I have the perfect anecdote, I have the perfect story, maybe I have the answer to whatever they're saying, I know exactly what I'm gonna say, and then someone changes the subject and you're like, I gotta try to get us back on that subject <laughs> because I have the perfect thing to say and so I need to bring that back up. Well, see, it's interesting in this moment because if your question for Jesus would be, how can I trust you to be the light? The interesting thing is what happened in this moment where it says, at dawn, he sat everybody down and, and the, the candles are out, the torches are out, the smell of the smoke is still in the air. The, the moment is perfect. And can I just tell you, as a communicator, I don't always know 100% everything that's gonna come out of my mouth when I come up here, but I do know what I'm gonna say first. I do know how I'm going to begin. I do know how I'm going to get started. And I just believe in this moment that as the wonderful communicator that he was, that Jesus had these people seated, the smoke is in the air, he knows it's the perfect moment, the perfect illustration to say, I am the light of the world. And verse two says he has them seated and he's ready to teach them. And it says in chapter eight, verse two, at dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all of the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. Now, this is the moment where he's going to say, I am the light of the world, except, verse 3, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. This is a major subject change. This has nothing to do with light. If you understand what's actually going on in this moment, they have brought an unclothed woman 
caught in the act of adultery right in front of Jesus as he's about to speak. Now, I've done a decent amount of communicating. I don't know how you get that audience back. This is a major distraction. This is a major subject change. And not only did they bring a naked woman into the scenario, they asked him what he thought should be done about it. And so in this moment, there's this massive distraction from what he's actually trying to say. He's actually trying to say, I am the light of the world. And here they bring in this woman and picking up in verse three, it says they made her stand before the group. They made her stand before the group. Can you imagine in this moment? Can you imagine the shame of this moment? There's no question about what's happened. There's no ambiguity about what she was caught in. They make her stand before the crowd and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses commands us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on 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 the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Have you ever felt completely exposed in a moment? Have you ever felt like it's very clear that you're the one that doesn't belong in the moment? Have you ever felt as though you're the one that stands out? Like some of you may be sitting in this room right now and you're feeling that way right now. I don't belong in this place. I don't need to be in this place. I I should not be here right now. Now, see, this woman was clearly the one that didn't belong. This woman was clearly the one that shouldn't be here in this moment. And I don't think it's any mistake that that Jesus has the crowd sitting down and he's waiting to say, I am the light of the world. And those who follow me, it will lead them to life. And yet the religious leaders bring someone out of darkness, point out their darkness and demand death. They demand the the harshest penalty. They demand death in this moment. See, the, the light in this moment, it exposes darkness, but the purpose is not just to expose the darkness. The purpose in this moment is healing. The purpose in this moment is restoration. See, when Jesus bent down and he wrote in the sand, we don't know exactly what he said in this moment. We don't know exactly what he wrote, but many scholars believe that he was writing in the sand the sins of those who have brought the woman to him. And in this moment, he's, he's writing. And can you imagine they are referring to the law of Moses that the Bible says was written on stone by the finger of God. And the finger of God is writing in the sand their own sins that break that very law. And I think there's this interesting contrast of the one who wrote in stone, the unchanging laws of God is writing in the sand as though to say, even for you, these actions, they're not permanent. These could be wiped away. These will not last forever. These will not stay in stone. This is just in sand. I I have the ability to wipe this away. 
This is not a permanent inscription about who you are. This is not a permanent inscription about what you've done. This is just a reminder that you are every bit as guilty as this woman that you've brought to us. This is just a reminder that that you are of the same condition of her. But this is not permanent. It says that they all walked away, beginning with the oldest. Because the older you are, probably the more things there were to write. And so it says they all walked away until only Jesus was left. Now remember in this moment, Jesus said, you who is without sin cast the first stone. So the only person left is Jesus, the one without sin. The only person left is the one who, by the qualifications that he laid out, is qualified to stone her, is qualified to throw the first stone. And yet he says, where are your accusers now? Because I'm not one of them. See, there will always, there will always be religious people who want to shine a light on your darkness for the purpose of shame. There will always be religious people who want to shine a light on your darkness for the purpose of condemnation, for the purpose of bringing death into your life. The thing is, Jesus is not one of them. The thing is, Jesus is not one of them. Jesus is not one who says, I will throw the first stone. I'm qualified. I'm sinless. I will throw the first stone. Jesus holds in that moment and says, I I don't accuse you, so go and sin no more. So Jesus has, has just shown how the light of the world deals with darkness. He says, go and sin no more. He says, woman, where are they now? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. See, standing in this moment, they had this historical representation of what the light of the world was. The light of the world was this light that led them through the wilderness. This light of the world was the light that took them through darkness. And now they have a real-time example of how the light of the world now deals with darkness. That the light of the world exposes darkness, but not for the purpose of shame, not for the purpose of disgrace, that he exposes darkness for the purpose of healing. Can you imagine if you went into a a surgery and I don't know if you've ever been into an OR, but they are well lit. There's a lot of light and that's a place where you want a lot of light because they're going to open you up and they're going to look to see what the problem is. But can you imagine if you came out of surgery and you come through recovery and they bring you out of anesthesia and you say, how'd it go? And they were like, "We, we saw the problem. We saw it clear as anything. We saw the problem. Great. And you took care of it? Oh, no. No, no. No, we closed you back up, but we saw it. We saw it. We know what's in there, but we let we close it back up. That's not, that's not how a surgeon works. That's not how a doctor works. That's not how someone who is committed to your health works. That's not someone whose whole purpose is to make you better and to make you whole. That's not how they work. No, they say, yeah, I saw it clearly and I removed it. 
I saw it clearly and I took it out. See, I shone a bright light on it so that I could bring healing into your life. I shine a bright light on it so that I can remove the things. See, I am not bringing this light to bring you shame. I am not bringing this light to bring you condemnation. I am not bringing this light to point out your faults. I am shining a light in this moment so that you can go and sin no more. I am the light of the world. And if you follow me, you will never walk in darkness. See, when Jesus said, I am the light of the world, it was more than just a metaphor about what God has done in the past. It was a picture of what God wanted to do with the darkness in this moment. Jesus is not your accuser. Jesus is your savior. Jesus does not illuminate your darkness to bring judgment. Jesus illuminates darkness to bring freedom. And see, one of the biggest lies of the enemy is that you should keep your life in darkness so that you can avoid shame, so that you can avoid condemnation, so that you can avoid pain. But Jesus wants you to bring your life into the light so that you can experience freedom. Jesus wants you to bring your life into the light so that you can experience wholeness. Jesus wants you to bring your life into the light so that you can go and sin no more. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me this morning?